What do you get when you cross a theology nerd with a very simple question? The answer is the deepest discussion on God's sense of humor you're likely to ever hear. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. Before we start, I want to thank my monthly supporters who help make sure that my particular brand of terrible humor and solid theology are available every week through this podcast. If you'd like to join them in supporting this ministry, you can visit patreon.com slash onward in the faith or check the links down in the show notes. So does God have a sense of humor? Now, if you are like 50% of the Christians out there, your initial reaction is, well, of course he does. Look at the duck-billed platypus. And the funny thing about that to me is that when I told my wife when I was writing the article version of this, I told her what I was working on. She said, well, yeah, look at the platypus. And so I had to laugh, take her over to the computer to see my draft and see that the very first or the very second line of my article was that Christians say, oh, well, look at the duck-billed platypus. Other evidences that people use to say that God has a sense of humor is that if you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans. Or if someone says, does God have a sense of humor? We can respond with, well, of course he does. If he gave you a face like that. So it's, it's fun and lighthearted and I think even innocent to a degree to joke about God's sense of humor. We can look at the world around us and see things that are silly, or we can just apply our own silliness to the question. And there are Christians out there who will have friendly and lighthearted, but honest debates and discussions on, you know, does God have a sense of humor? And I think it's a good question to ask. It's not salvific. It's not one that will determine our eternal destiny or maybe even necessarily whether we truly understand God or not. But humor is a characteristic of us for a lot of people. It is an important part of their lives. And so we want to know, you know, does God have a sense of humor? Is our humor a gift from God? Is it something that is unique to humans? And so it's an interesting question. So interesting, in fact, that I actually blame a good friend of mine for making me dig into this topic because he and his wife had had just a a little discussion about it. And so he shot me a text kind of uh, wondering my thoughts. And I honestly had to think about it because I had my knee jerk reaction of platypus. Ha ha ha. But realistically, I started thinking, you know, theologically, is God capable of humor? And as I started thinking about it, I basically told him, I'm going to have to get back to you on that because I'm, I'm actually curious myself. And so what the question ultimately boils down to is something a bit more theological than we may initially realize. And that is, to use a, a big Bible nerd word, is God ontologically capable of humor? In other words, ontology is having the very kind of nature or makeup or characteristics. So is it possible for God's nature, his character to at least entertain the possibility of having a sense of humor? And so as I warned about in the intro to this, this is going to be a slightly deep discussion. I mean, it's not going to be over anyone's head, I don't think, but maybe this is just me being me, but this is something that I think is worth digging into. 
Maybe not because the question of does God have a sense of humor is important, but it's a good exercise in observing evidence in the Bible because God doesn't really come flat out and say, I have a sense of humor, therefore tell me jokes. You know, God doesn't reveal his character in a simple bullet point, but instead, as with most of God's nature, he reveals who he is primarily through his interactions with his creation. You know, sometimes he will come out and say specifically who he is. He will he will give a flat out statement on his nature. You know, I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. You know, sometimes he'll come out and he'll say, you know, I have no need of anything from people. You know, he is self-sufficient. But for something like God's sense of humor, even though he doesn't come out and say whether or not this is true of him, what I think we can do and what I want to do in this episode is to look at evidences that we have through God's word, um, maybe take a little bit of a philosophical approach in understanding what humor actually is and see if we can come up with an answer that we can be a little more comfortable with, not just based on opinion, but actually considering the biblical and uh, kind of general evidence that we have to think about it. Now, I will warn you, I am not going to come to a definitive conclusion. I think it will be obvious where I likely fall. But again, I think that it is something where we have to just weigh the evidence and say, what does it seem to point to? And so that's what we're going to do in this episode. So the first evidence that people will cite, and as I was researching this, this was a thing that was repeated fairly frequently. And that is that we can be confident God has a sense of humor because people have a sense of humor. And people get this argument, and I don't know if people truly believe this or if this is just one of those packaged answers, but this is generally the the primary honest answer people will give. So I said people jokingly talk about the platypus and, you know, make make light of God's humor. But in terms of an actual biblical discussion, this is mostly where people seem to fall. And they get this from the creation account in Genesis 1:27, which says, then God said, let us make man in our image. And so where a lot of people come away with that is that when we are made in God's image, it means that we are given maybe an imprint or a likeness to his character and nature. So we understand justice, anger, righteousness, love, and even humor because God does. And because we are made in his image, we share in that nature of his. Now, we don't want to go too far afield and get into things where we say we will be like God someday or that we have all the capabilities that God has. Instead, from a more conservative Christian viewpoint, and I I say conservative theologically, not politically, but from a more conservative Christian viewpoint, the argument is that we share in the noble characteristics of God. So we are not omniscient, but we understand power. We are not all loving, or sorry, we're not omniscient, we understand knowing. We are not omnipotent, but we understand power. We are not omnipresent, but we know what it is to exist. Likewise, we're not all loving, but we know love. We are not perfectly good, but we understand goodness, things like that. And so the argument then, obviously, is that because we have humor, we can, in a way, reverse engineer that to say that if we can experience something that is not sinful, so 
I guess we first have to assume that humor isn't sinful, which I hope it's not because I'm going to have to repent of over 100 podcast episode intros. But uh, if we assume that humor or sense of humor is a good thing or a gift from God, then we have to assume that because we possess a sense of humor, God must also possess a sense of humor. It is not going to be like ours. He's not going to laugh at the same things because humor is subjective. It is based on culture, upbringing, experience, stuff like that. But we can make the argument that as people made in God's image, if we have humor, God has humor. Now, for some, that's just kind of a slam dunk case. But if you are someone who doesn't necessarily believe or agree that being made in God's image or being an image bearer of God means that we are copied, we are made like him. But instead, as and people may be shocked right now, it's like, oh, you know, make a podcast episode about this. Um, but there are those who would say that being God's image bearer is being his representative on earth. We we serve him. We act as God's authority on earth, just as, say, a a police officer is a bearer of the law and an enforcer of the law. And anyway, but if you don't take that position or if you are unconvinced from the argument that, oh, well, because humans have a sense of humor, God must, then that's fine. Because I think there's even more that we can look at that may even be more convincing than this kind of unspoken assumption that we make based on the nature of God's creation of mankind. But all I'd say that is an option that if being made in God's image means that we are made after his character and nature, but imperfectly or less majestically, if you're convinced by that, that works. If not, then keep listening because we've got a whole lot more that we can look at when it comes to determining whether God has a sense of humor. But before we do... I want to share a little bit of a nightmare that I lived through in trying to do this. So I didn't want to take this topic half-heartedly. I wanted to give it serious thought and consideration because I found the thought fascinating on a personal level, but I think it's something that can be known. I think that God has revealed enough of himself to come to some kind of answer, but that required me to actually define what humor is. So I had two bits of frustration. First, laughter died for me for about three days after finally digging into all this. And it's by the end of this episode, it might die for you too, because there's kind of this, this understanding in comedy that if you want to kill a joke, you have to explain the joke. In other words, someone can tell a joke and if you don't get it for someone to explain it to you, it's just not going to be funny. Humor is one of those things that's funny as soon as you hear it, but as soon as you have to really dig into the science and nature and even psychology of what makes a thing funny, it ceases to be funny. And we'll actually get into part of that uh, towards the end of the episode. But as I'm sitting here digging into, you know, does God have a sense of humor? I had to define, okay, what is humor? What makes things funny? And just the kind of scientific approach or attempt of defining humor was kind of a bummer, you know? So understand that as we're going into this, like I'm having fun with this. I think this is a cool topic. It's an interesting one. I'm, t- I'm approaching it with some seriousness, but it's, it's about humor. You know, it's not about God's perfection or timelessness or things like that. But understand that by the end of this, you're probably going to find humor a little less funny. You've been warned. 
Second problem I had with this is actually sitting down to define humor. And it's one of those things that is almost a, a circular reasoning where people can't accurately define what humor is. You know, humor is a thing that's subjective. We all know that. What I find funny, you're not going to find funny. Uh, if you find, you know, my jokes at the beginning of episodes hilarious or even humorous, or they make you violently puff air out of your nose for a moment, you know, that's a weird thing for you, but there's probably one or two people out there in the world who may not find that stuff funny. But despite it being subjective, it, I felt like it humor should be a thing that we can easily define, that we can get our hands around and just say, here is what humor is. If, if an alien had to come to Earth and say, hey, what is humor? How would we explain it to them? But as I was trying to define it, humor is one of those things that, from what I found, Humor is knowing what's funny, and you know if something is funny because it's humorous. It's this circular reason where it's just, it's funny because it's humorous, and it's humorous because it's funny. And I couldn't really find a solid, concrete definition. So let me walk you through where most people would start. And that is just going to Webster's Dictionary. So when we are defining words, we use a group of words to define a single word. And so if we want to better understand those words, then we have to look up what do those words mean. And as those words are explained, we have to look at the definitions used in those and on and on. And we, and we can keep making this whole like kind of uh, tree of taking the word humor and then breaking down all the words associated with it to maybe get a conclusion. So come with me through the frustrating process of trying to define humor through a dictionary. So what is a sense of humor? That's the first thing I looked up. A sense of humor is a personality trait that gives someone the ability to either say funny things or see the funny side of things. Okay, so we need to be able to see the funny side of things. So we need to define what is funny. Funny is one of two things. Either funny is affording light mirth and laughter or seeking or intended to amuse. So then we need to break down two of those. So the first one is talking about something's funny when it when it allows you or encourages you to laugh or something is funny because it's intended to amuse you. So what is laughing? Laughing is to show emotion with a chuckle or explosive vocal sound or to find amusement or pleasure in something. So again, we're getting to something's humorous when it provides an opportunity for amusement. So what is amusement or what does it mean to amuse? To appeal to the sense of humor of someone. So then we got to go back to sense of humor and it's just this circular thing. So humor is so frustratingly impossible to define because again, something is humorous or it appeals to our sense of humor when it's funny and it's funny because it appeals to our sense of humor. But we all know that humor is a thing. We know when something is funny when we encounter it. When someone makes a terrible joke, we say that's not funny. Why? Because we know what funny is, and that's not meeting some expectation, some threshold that we set for determining when something is or is not funny. And so maybe, as I was thinking, a better way to go about this is to say, okay, what are things that we find funny? What are aspects of comedy? What are types of humor? And does God, as he reveals himself, as he interacts with his creation, does he display any kinds of those pieces of humor. So that then led me to a great website called masterclass.com. 
Uh, this is not an advertisement for it or anything, but the, to, to explain why I trust Masterclass. So it is a uh, Netflix-like subscription service where you give a monthly fee and there's all kinds of videos and things like that that just dig into all kinds of topics, both historical and religious. And some of their ones on Christianity were, I thought, pretty valuable when I used to use the service. So Masterclass, it's not this highly academic thing, but they do have, from my personal experience, a history and a they've proven themselves to be trustworthy, to think well about things. So I found an article on Masterclass, which is um, linked in my original article, and they go through 13 different types of comedy. Now, as I look, went through the list, you know, I realized that, you know, it's not the most exhaustive list, but it gives a kind of a wide enough net that I felt, okay, I can look at these 13 different types of comedy or things that people find amusing or humorous. And I can think about the different ways that God has engaged with people or things he's done or said to be able to say, okay, has God shown any, any hint of humor as we as human beings understand humor? And I'm not going to go through all 13 of them because I think 11 of them just don't work. I think that, uh, as we'll discuss later, they work more as a human version of comedy because they demand the unexpected and the surprising and maybe even creating or, or dealing with discomfort. But of these 13, I think that there are two aspects of comedy that we see in God that could point us to God having a sense of humor again, based on how we define humor. Uh, those two things are wordplay and observational humor. And so I'm just going to give some, I'm going to define what these are and just give some examples of each so that we can kind of get an understanding of maybe God showing that a sense of humor is a, a full and perfect part of his nature. So wordplay is in a way being creative with language. It can be dad jokes. It can be puns. It can be using words in unexpected ways. It can be, you know, rhyming things or saying things in kind of a, a surprising way that drives home a point. So in the Bible, we actually see some examples of clever wordplay. Now, where this is really difficult is that wordplay depends on language. You know, wordplay in English is going to be lost when we translate it into Spanish. Wordplay in an African dialect is going to be lost when translated into English because wordplay just depends on some cultural assumptions, some sounds and spellings and things like that. And so when we look at kind of the more original languages, though, I think we can start to get a better picture of God using wordplay in dealing with creation. So the first one is in Matthew 23, 24, where Christ says, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Whew, hilarious stuff, am I right? Now, if you don't get the joke, I will go ahead and ruin it by explaining it to you. Because again, this is a prime example of something not translating well into English. Now, we immediately see a bit of a humor where Christ is saying, hey, you are worrying about these itty bitty tiny gnats getting into your food and making you break the law, but you are swallowing entire camels willingly. You know, it's it's a ridiculous picture already. And so it's already there's a bit of a humor in the picture created here. But when we look at the original language here, uh, we actually see that Christ is choosing gnats and camel, not just because of the size difference, but because of how they are spelled in or, or pronounced, I should say, in the Greek. So I will, 
uh, translate it. And instead of gnat and camel, I'll use the original words. So, you blind guides, straining out a galma and swallowing a gamla. So here, Jesus Christ, who is God come to earth in human flesh, he's using humor. He's using clever wordplay of galma and gamla. It's G-A-L-M-A or G-A-M-L-A. So two letters are switched. And Christ is kind of using that and saying, you know, these things, you know, you're, you're, focusing so much on this one thing that you're ignoring something that is so close, but yet so much bigger. You know, galma to gamla, it's an easy mistake to make when speaking or when writing, and yet the meanings of them are astronomically different, a gnat versus a camel. And so Christ, I think we can argue, is using humor here because he could have said anything. He could have used any word instead of what means camel, right? Because they, you know, they, it was important for them to strain out gnats from their food and their drink. And he could have used anything. You, you swallow a donkey, you swallow a pig. You know, he, he could have said anything, but he specifically chose a word that was clever wordplay from gnat to camel in the original Greek. Again, we could argue that is humorous if we heard it for the first time and kind of got the joke without me having to be here and spend five minutes explaining it. Now, another instance of Christ using clever wordplay is when he gives Simon Barjona a name. So he says in Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Again, the joke of it is lost on us because here we have a bit of a, a pun and a little bit of irony for those who are able to look back and see probably what Christ knew about this person that he was naming Peter. So Peter's kind of given or born name was Simon Barjona. And Christ gave him a name that plays off of the word rock. So let me read it to you in the uh, sub- substituting the Greek when relevant. He said, and I tell you, you are Petros. And on this Petra, I will build my my church. So Petros, Petra. So Peter's name basically is a a translation or a form of the word Petra, which means rock. So he's basically saying, you are named rock and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, once again, getting away from all the theological discussions we could have about what that means. The funny thing here is that he is using He is giving Peter the name rock and saying, hey, on this rock, whatever this rock means, I'm going to build my church. So wordplay just on its own, Peter being given a name that has to do with kind of the the proclamation that Christ made about Peter is clever. But this is extra funny when we remember who Peter is and what he did, because you think, oh, rock. Yeah, that's that's a good, strong name. I mean, you think uh, if you watch modern movies, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, uh, he used to be a professional wrestler and his name was The Rock. And that's a name you choose when you want to be a big, beefy, muscular guy who's to be, you know, feared and to look intimidating. So you give a guy originally named Simon Barjona, you say, hey, your name is Rock. There's some assumptions about that guy. There's some some beliefs that we're going to have about the nature that he's going to fulfill. Now, bear in mind that the rock is the guy who was so easily swayed and fell apart and softened and turned turned to mushy jelly 
right after Christ was taken and crucified and people are saying, hey, aren't you one of his followers? And the rock is like, no, 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 that's not me. That's I don't follow that guy. Yeah. So it's again, that is a funny thing that, again, God in naming him probably knew that Peter was going to deny him and that the rock would be little more than paper mache when faced with very light intimidation and peer pressure from other people. So again, it's kind of funny if we understand the original language when we encounter it the first time. Now, a final example of perhaps some clever wordplay or clever naming is in Gideon in the Old Testament. So this is in Judges chapters 6 through 8. Um, I would encourage you to read it and kind of get the full picture of Gideon. So at the end of Gideon's life, he is kind of a, a conqueror. You know, God uses him mightily to basically rescue Israel. It's not because Gideon is, you know, some masterful person, but instead he obeyed God. Now, when we first meet Gideon, he's actually hiding in a wine press and kind of threshing his wheat because he's hiding his wheat from the Midianites, which were kind of an invading army. And so God uh, sends an angel and calls on Gideon to deliver Israel from, from the Midianites. And so Gideon, he kind of hems and haws, and he's not sure, and he's just riddled with anxiety and doubt. And several times throughout his life, he's questioning if God really means what he says and if God's really going to back him. And he makes God jump through some hoops, which is a little sketchy on its own. Um, But eventually, Gideon kind of grows up or grows into or walks in obedience and becomes, uh, you know, like I said, a conqueror. He destroys the Midianites from Israel land. Now, the humor here is that Gideon, uh, depending on how it's translated, but the two most common translations are that Gideon, this, this guy who his parents gave him a name, he was named Great Warrior or Destroyer. So imagine just going through life and people, when, when your parents named you, when you grew up, when friends talked to you, your name meant Destroyer. That's pretty hardcore. That is intense. And so the humor here, what's funny, is that God calls on the destroyer when he's hiding in a wine press because he's scared of the bad guys. The destroyer is constantly wringing his hands in anxiety because he's not sure if God's really with him, if he's really going to keep his word. The great warrior is saying, hey, God, I'll obey, but can you, can I like throw this fleece out there and you make the the dew fall on everything except the fleece? And okay, okay, but, but God, it's me, great warrior and destroyer again. I'm still not sure. What if, so what if this time I throw the fleece out and only the dew is on the fleece and nothing else? Then, then I'm going to be real confident. You know, Gideon does not carry his namesake in a lot of his interactions with God until very later in um, what we see of him in Judges. But again, the almighty and sovereign God of the universe took the one who would be named Gideon and called on him specifically out of anyone else to be a judge for Israel. Again, is that funny? Maybe. Similar to Peter, you know, crumpling like a little origami crane when having pressure applied to him. Gideon being the least brave judge possibly is is something noteworthy. So, but that is just some examples of God using kind of clever wordplay and creativity and maybe a little bit of irony in 
the words he uses or the names associated with the people that he calls to serve him. Now, the next thing that we can possibly see God using as humor is observational humor. Now, observational humor draws attention to things in life that we don't realize are humorous or we don't realize how absurd they are until someone points it out to us. So as an example that I found, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, he's an older comic, um, but he makes an observation that kind of hit a little close to home for me, but I think that's what makes observational humor great. Isn't that it makes fun of other people, but that it points to realities in our own lives and shows how ridiculous some things are. So his observational joke, if you will, is what is this obsession people have with books? They put them in their houses like they're trophies. What do you need it for after you read it? Now, it's not a funny voice. It's not saying funny things, but I find that funny. That is so true. Historically, I have had some unpleasant discussions with my wife because if I want to read a book, I want to own the book and I don't want to get rid of the book after I've read it. Now, over time and after kind of being honest with myself, I've trimmed down my bookshelf to only the things that I know I'm going to read again. But you really think about it. You know, some of you look at your bookshelf. You've read things, Christian or non-Christian. You enjoyed it, and so you keep it. Why? It's ridiculous. It's absurd. It takes up real estate in our house. It removes our ability to make money off of a purchase. It is a habit we get into that costs us money because we don't want to rent things from the library or borrow things from people. And it, refu it removes our ability to bless others with a book so that they can be blessed by it. They don't have to buy it and they can pass it on to others. So why do we have bookshelves and boxes and attics full of books that we either read once and never read again, or we buy and buy and buy because we make the mistake of thinking, hey, if I buy 50 books, I'll have time to read 50 books, but then they just never get read. That is observational humor. Again, it's observational humor that's ruined by me explaining the joke, but we can all agree that that is kind of funny. It is ridiculous and absurd, and a lot of us don't think about it until it's pointed out, and we realize, yeah, that is really silly that I do that. And some of you are scrambling for the pause button because you don't want your husband or wife or kids or parents to hear what I just said and have them give you that look of, hey, are you paying attention? Because you know you're guilty just as much as I am. But observational humor, at its core, it states a valid point, but it states it in a way or points out a thing that is kind of humorous despite the truth and even the conviction that it can bring. So some examples of this are, uh, first one, God mocks the usage and belief in idols. So Daniel 5.23 but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and who are all your ways you've not honored. So reading it that way, you kind of get the humor of this, right? He's saying, Hey, you have these, these things made out of physical materials, materials that God made. You have to craft them. And yet even when you craft them and you worship them and you pray to them and you make sacrifices to them, they don't hear you. They don't see you. They don't know anything because they're stuff. 
It's like worshiping a couch. It's like worshiping a rug. It is just as aware of your worship and it is just as capable of delivering you from what you're kind of trying to please it for as a dirty sock is dumb. I mean, that's really what God's getting at. Like how ridiculous and ludicrous do you have to be to put your trust in these instead of the God who gives you your breath, who gives you a pattern for your life, who calls you to live and serve. Why would you serve unliving and unknowing idols when the true and living God of the universe is right here with you? It's serious, right? It's convicting even for us today. You know, you look at your social media account and how much you rely on popularity or people liking you. You look at your political party. You look at your looks, your success, uh, how you are as a parent, your kids, your job, whatever it is. We all have these things that we trust in and say, hey, if I focus on this, this is going to bring me ultimate happiness. That's idolatry. We worship the dumbest things out there. We trust in everything except the one God of the universe who is capable of saving us, of delivering us, of bringing us true and lasting joy and satisfaction. But we go and we know we're ridiculous and trying to find it in other things. And God, I think, finds that just as kind of woefully humorous as we do. Now, to see more of this, for number two, we're going to see God mock idols even more. Isaiah 46, 6-7, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it doesn't answer or save him from his trouble. Again, the ridiculousness of idols. You want to pray to this God that you've created? Well, you got to harvest the materials. You have to find someone who can smelt and craft the materials. If you want to get it to whatever temple you've set up, you have to pick it up and stick it there. And then once it's there, it is there for good unless you or natural events happen that make it shift from its place. But this God that you've created, that you are asking to deliver you to have power in your life, cannot exist without you doing everything for it, first of all. Whereas Israel and us worship a God who is self-existent, who needs nothing, who exists apart from our belief. He is who he says he is, despite what we think about him. God is not someone that we craft in our own image. God is who he is, and he calls us to worship him in truth, not worship him in how we want to worship him. Again, this is a deathly serious thing, a thing that is literally the cause of heaven or hell for people. But when we think about just how ridiculous it is, even though it's not necessarily funny, haha, it's humorous. It's ridiculous. It makes us smile and sigh and shake our heads and even chuckle a little bit at how dumb it is when we realize that we are guilty of it. Now, number three are God's curious judgments. Now, in the Old Testament, God will hellfire and brimstone. He will wipe people out. He will have invading armies come and conquer. And that's how he will judge his people. That is how he will call his people to return to him. Uh, if you remember 
way on back in the early days of the podcast. I went through Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, I had no other plans I have for you, says the Lord's plan to prosper you and not to harm you. And I dug into how God used 40 years of captivity in Babylon, a pagan nation, where the people who were conquered would probably not live to see God's deliverance. And how God used that to judge his people with the intent of pointing out their sin and calling them back to him. But God doesn't always work as maybe directly as that. Sometimes he will judge his people. He will call his people to see the reality of their sin in ways that are maybe wacky is a good word for it. So let me give you an example. Hosea was a prophet who was called to marry Gomer. Gomer was a prostitute. Gomer did not change her prostituting ways upon marriage. In fact, Isaiah had to not only deal with day after day her going and having sex with other men, breaking their covenant, but he had to even go and redeem her and rescue her from the result of her choices as a married woman to live in a way that was apart from her husband. Now, the whole point of that is that Hosea wasn't just a picture of how to suffer in marriage. Hosea was a picture of God's patience with Israel. Israel was a whore. God calls them that frequently throughout the Old Testament. They would go whoring around, prostituting themselves to other gods, and then God would be the one to stay faithful despite their unfaithfulness. And not only would God be patiently faithful, but he would go and rescue them. He would return them to him, to what they truly needed, to the one that they were truly married to. Now, God could have just had them get conquered or be unhappy or any number of things. But instead, God chose this weird and painful image of Hosea and Gomer to point out Israel's unfaithfulness and God's patience and love and mercy in the face of their adultery. Now, it's not funny. I don't think anyone reads Hosea and says, ha ha, oh, that Gomer, she's at it again. What a rascal. But the absurdity, the extremeness of that picture causes us to take a more unique notice of it. Now, something a little less painful is Ezekiel. So at one point in Ezekiel's ministry, God does something that is so strange when we when we first run into it. And a lot of people kind of scratch their heads and they either devote a lot of time trying to understand what's going on or shrug their shoulders and say, that's too weird for me. Let's move on. And that is when God essentially calls for Ezekiel to get a brick and decorate it like Jerusalem and then make little toy replicas of siege engines and things like that and to make it make a, a little diorama of Jerusalem being sieged. And then he tells him, hey, lie on your side facing one direction for a few hundred days, then flip over and face the other way. And this wasn't just God having Ezekiel do something weird or telling him to do something that seemed impossible, but we should act on faith. God did this as a judgment against Israel. He did it to point out their sin and what was coming for them. Again, God could have chosen straightforward, simple, maybe for lack of a better word, boring ways to do this. Instead, he had Ezekiel play with some toys and then lay down for a while as a judgment against the people's sin. Maybe that's funny. Maybe that's God being funny. 
in the face of seriousness. And then finally, the book of Job filled cover to cover with hilarity. Am I right? So a while ago, I wrote an article that is linked in my original article, which is linked below about what I call the funniest verse in the Bible. And the funniest verse in the Bible to me is where God says to Job to gird up your loins and get ready. And in that article, I explain why I find that so funny. But in the book of Job, I think that God shows that he has no problem with sarcasm and observational humor, saying things that aren't intended as a flat statement but instead are said in such a way using specific words and situations to point out the ridiculousness of something to really hammer home a point. Because you read the book of Job and it's not about Job is just a super faithful guy. You know, if you read Job, apart from the assumptions that we bring into it, Job is a man who is not perfect. If you, as you read him, he essentially comes to the conclusion that God is an unjust bully who just picks on who he wants to, and Job can't help it. He is just merciless against God. And in a way, Job is accusing God of being unjust and not right in what Job has suffered. Now, however much you agree with Job, not the point of this episode, but God has a response, and God shows up in a whirlwind, and he says, who is it that is darkening counsel with their foolishness. In other words, who are the dummies sitting here talking about who I am without knowing anything that they're talking about? And so God lays into Job's friends, but then God lays into Job and God lays into Job because Job needs laying into. Job needs to have his head corrected because even though Job had suffered something that Job didn't even understand, right? Because Job didn't have this picture in heaven of, of God's courtroom and what was going on there. Job just knew everything was falling apart in a handful of days. And so God is basically pointing out to Job, who are you compared to me? Who do you think you are and who do you think I am? What level above me do you think you are? Or how close to me do you think you are? Now, as God is addressing Job in this, he could have gone any number of ways. He literally could have just condemned Job. He could have just explained flat out scientifically with a lot of coldness why Job was wrong in the things that he was assuming and accusing God of. But instead, God uses a lot of sarcastic and observational phrases to, I think, use extreme questions and extreme observations to show the reality of the situation. So like I said, in my article, I point out some humor in Job, but I want to point out another part of humor that really I think shows based on how God is talking and what he's saying, why this might be God using humor to get at a very serious point. So this is Job 41 verses 1 to 6. He says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope on his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on a leash for your girls? So if I were to translate this or if I were to get at what God is kind of saying here in more modern terms. Again, I don't want to, I want to be very clear that this is just me being silly 
in, in how I'm translating this. But if you look at the things that God is saying when he's talking about this massive sea creature called Leviathan, what I think we could kind of jokingly say if we were to rephrase it is, can you fish up Leviathan like a salmon? Can you walk him around like a little doggy? Can you make him speak and sit and roll over? Can you make him purr like a kitten? Is there any chance that you can treat him like a cute little animal and play with him? Or can you tie Leviathan on a leash and give him some little kids to play with? No, because I can. So this is a funny picture. God is saying, hey, here's this massive sea creature called Leviathan. Maybe it was, uh, you know, one of those massive dinosaurs. We don't really know. It could have been a whale. We just don't know. I'm not going to get into it. But it's something that Job understood is immense beyond anything Job could do. And God's saying, hey, consider Leviathan. You know what Leviathan is. You know it's big. You know that you are nothing in the face of it. You are helpless. You couldn't even move it. It could move and exist and not even realize that you were trying your hardest to somehow wrestle it or tame it. Now, you think of that difference between you and this creature. And let me ask you, can you treat it like a little pet? Can you play with it like it's just a tiny bird in your hands? And God is using this to show Job how vastly different they are. It's not that God is a better version of a person. It's not that God is just like a perfect idea of how we should behave. God is God. And we as his creation are so meager. You know, in Romans, when Paul points out, you know, how is the the clay going to say to the potter? Or how is the pottery going to say to the potter? How dare you make me like this? You know, the, the sheer audacity that a, a clay pot has to have to question its maker is the same as what God is pointing out here. Who are you really, Job, to question me? That's what God is saying. How close to me do you think you are? You, you can't even deal with a little sea creature that I created. This thing is nothing to me. How much less in power and wisdom and understanding are you to me? That's what God's getting at. And he could have just said that. Hey, Job, I'm big, you're little. Deal with it. God could have been straightforward, but instead he paints this very funny picture of putting a little leash on Leviathan, playing with it like a little bird, giving it to some kids to play with. You know, God, I think, is using extreme humor to point out to Job the very serious reality of who God is versus who people are. And even someone who seemed as innocent and upright as Job is honestly nothing compared to God. Who is Job to question God? Who is Job to try to play with a giant whale or dinosaur? It's as ridiculous as us saying that we know how things ought to work when we don't even know how most of us don't even know how electricity works. And yet we have the audacity to say to God, hey, here's how you need to do things. Hey, here's what I need to be happy. Here's how you need to work in my life. It is ridiculous. And I think God knows how ridiculous it is, so much so that despite it grieving him that Job or us behaves that way and thinks that way, God can still deal with it in a way that is maybe not lighthearted, but humorous, maybe funny. So those are some examples that I see of God potentially using humor in the Bible, taking those 13 uh, 
types of comedy, like I talked about, and just looking at two of them that I think God may exemplify. Now, on top of that, I think there's some other considerations that we can make. And these things didn't fit clearly and cleanly with wordplay or observational humor, but just some other things to think about, because clearly it seems like, okay, yeah, God does have a sense of humor because of how he uses words. But just a couple other things that I think are worth considering before we wrap up this topic. Uh, The first thing to consider is what makes something funny? So I talked about how there's 13 types of humor out there. And again, you can check that list and see the different things. But in addition to types of humor, there is something that tends to be common throughout much of comedy. Because it's, you know, observational humor isn't just funny because it's observational humor, but it's humorous because of what it does. So I think there's three aspects of things that tend to be present in humor. Uh, The first is awkwardness or discomfort. Either it is used by us to relieve awkwardness and discomfort. So you think of like dark humor. So, you know, uh, there's a a long documented history of people like police officers and surgeons and doctors and, and people who are involved in very hard, grisly things using humor as a way to essentially cope with it, to remove the seriousness of the situation, to alleviate their discomfort or awkwardness about something. Same way how we make jokes when we're uncomfortable and why they tend to fall flat when we do it. But humor is just a way that we we deal with serious situations. Humor can also be funny when it creates discomfort or awkwardness. So again, going back to what is the obsession with collecting books? What use do you have with a book after you've read it? Do you really go back and read and reread all these books on your bookshelf? Do you read all the books that you buy from Amazon? That makes us uncomfortable. And it's funny because it makes us uncomfortable. Uh, The second thing is that things are usually funny when they're unexpected. Again, attacking things that are a normal part of our life, saying funny things, saying things that are extreme or that are unexpected for the situation, um, making noises, making faces, funny sounds and voices and stuff like that. Things tend to be funny because they aren't just cut and dry. They are over the top or under presented. They're, they're done in a way that go against what is normal. And that tends to be funny to us. Or number three, things are funnier when they relate to a shared human experience. So when someone makes jokes about going to Walmart, if you've been to a Walmart, that is much funnier to you than say, someone who lives in an Amish community and hasn't been to Walmart. Or if you are a fly fisherman, then someone making jokes about the Royal Wolf Company, that's gonna be a lot funnier to you than someone who has no idea what's happening. Maybe someone can like the humor of how it's said or the the bits that they do get, but things are much funnier the more we share in the experience that someone's talking about. So awkwardness, unexpected and shared human experience. Those tend to be three things that are present in much of what we find humorous. No matter what type of comedy we like, no matter what kind of humor does or doesn't make us laugh, these are the things that are present. And the issue then comes in that while we can see God doing things that seem funny, we have to realize that, you know, God doesn't get uncomfortable or awkward. And he may not necessarily seek to make someone uncomfortable or awkward. The things he say may convict, but 
saying anything with the seriousness of God is going to make us feel convicted about it. So we really have to ask ourselves, when we're looking at the examples I gave or other examples in God's word, is he really trying to use humor? Is he applying a sense of humor? Or does it seem humorous to us because of how we as people think about unexpected things and extreme things and, and examples like that? Second is that God isn't going to laugh at something because, oh, I did not expect him to say that. Like, this is God. God knows everything. He is not surprised by anything. Go listen to my episode on open theism if you want to understand why God is not surprised by anything that we say or do. It never has been and never will be. And I guess I got to pause for a second and put a note down in my show notes to add that episode on open theism because that's what I get for going off script and talking about extra stuff. Again, unexpected. You may have gotten a little chuckle. My point proven. Uh, So, but number three is, again, and this is really hard because we could say, ah, well, you know, maybe God is trying to make people uncomfortable and maybe God likes to catch us unaware. But this whole thing about shared human experience is really hard because God doesn't experience things like we do. He experiences us, right? He is a God who is present in his creation, but God doesn't experience the human life, the human condition like we do, not even remotely. He is God and we are not. And so while God saying things that make us uncomfortable and saying things that are unexpected examples, like, you know, talking about Leviathan and walking around like a little doggy. And maybe even God shares things that are related to our humor, human experience. Is this the same as when we sit down and listen to a comedian like John Christ make fun of, you know, Christian moms and how they act before church and stuff? Because most of us get it. It makes us uncomfortable because he is showing kind of an extreme example of what that might look like. It is unexpected because it's this, you know, guy acting like a Christian mom. But it's funny because despite those things, we get it. We share in the humor of it because we've run into whether personally uh, with our our wife or our own moms, or even if uh, as a woman listening to this, you're like this, we get why it's funny to make fun of these really extreme versions of you know, different Christian moms or or just in general Christian stereotypes. But does God really even get close to that? Or does he just say things that we, in our experience, tend to assume are funny? So when God does it, we assume, oh, this is also funny, just like these other things I've encountered. So just because God says things that are humorous or seem humorous doesn't mean that it is God using humor. It doesn't mean that God has a sense of humor just because he does something similar to how we do it. Uh, Now, the other consideration is to question, how did Christ experience humor? So in coming into creation and entering into, you know, God in human flesh, you know, where Christ was 100% God, 100% man, it gets a little harder to have this discussion because up to this point, we've been discussing God as Trinity. I've just been talking about, like I said, ontologically, is God by his very essence, by his very makeup, is he capable of having a sense of humor? And it's hard to know. Maybe, maybe. But when we introduce the independent persons of the Trinity, we don't really have any examples of the Holy Spirit. We have some maybe examples of the Father. 
But when it comes to Christ, Christ didn't just experience things as God, but as God and as man, as a perfect man without sin. And when we think about that, it's very clear that humor itself isn't a sinful thing because God, Christ used play on words and and sarcasm and things like that when dealing with people. You know, we saw with uh, Camel and the Gnat and Peter being a rock. And so if Christ experienced humor, then did he experience it because he was a human and therefore just applied sinless human experience to being God and therefore that's why he used clever wordplay? Or do we see God engaging with his creation in human flesh and it was his, his deity side that was humorous? And likewise, did Christ make jokes? Did he laugh at things that his friends did? As a child, was he just straight-laced and always studying, or did he run around and, you know, play jokes and and play pretend and things like that with his friends or family? We don't know. I'm not going to speculate, but we can't ignore the humanity of Christ. And as we are thinking about this question, if Christ experienced humor, if he used humor and had a sense of humor, did he have it as God, or was it simply because he had human experiences, just like God doesn't experience hunger, but Christ experienced hunger? Just as God didn't doesn't experience fatigue, Christ experienced fatigue. We want to ask ourselves, did Christ experience humor, laughter, lightheartedness as God, or because he was God in human flesh? I don't have a good answer, but it is as as you on your own are considering this question, that is, that is an interesting thing to kind of roll around in your head as well. And final thought, and why, if anything is going to make me struggle to say that God has a sense of humor, it's this. And that is that God doesn't really have much to laugh about. So we can make jokes about tragedies in our life. But it's very hard to find something to laugh about in the midst of tragedy, in the immediacy of it. So if someone, say, has cancer and they're dying of cancer, it's okay for them to joke about that. And to a degree, if they're okay with it, it's okay for people they know and love and trust to make jokes about their cancer as well. Again, that takes a lot of sensitivity, but it is not uncommon or wrong for humor to be applied to a serious situation. Uh, someone who's been in a serious accident, uh, you know, maybe at work or, you know, in the shop or something, they lost a finger and over time they can make jokes about it. You know, whatever, you know, I, I've uh, heard people who, you know, they've lost a finger and they will like be messing with a little kid and they'll pretend like the kid, you know, made them lose their finger and, and terrify the kid, you know. People can apply humor to serious things that have happened. However, as soon as someone loses that finger and they're in excruciating pain, as soon as someone gets that cancer diagnosis, the only reason a person is going to make a joke in that situation is because they want to relieve awkwardness. They want to use humor as a comfort to themselves. But it is very hard to actually find genuine humor, to want to be funny for the sake of being funny in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of sickness and suffering and death. And so God sees the reality of his creation. He sees the brokenness of it. He sees what sin has done 
in in bringing in spiritual death and in bringing in us living for ourselves and us being really on a steady and joyful run to hell because we want to serve ourselves rather than God. God sees not just reality of his enemies living the lives they do, but even his people living in sin. And God experiences every single moment of every single person's sin. And he experiences it for all time. Because remember, God's not bound in time with us where God hasn't experienced the next lie that I tell until I tell it. Because God is outside of time, he is fully aware of all sin for all of time. Things that we did a year ago, things that people did 4,000 years ago. God is aware of all sin for all time. And for as little as we can understand God's hatred and sorrow and pain over sin, we ask ourselves, is God in the midst of experiencing that, in the midst of understanding that and feeling sorrow and righteous anger for it? Is he then going to start using humor and clever wordplay with the intention of tapping into his sense of humor? Or is he going to say everything he says with a seriousness and that even those things that seem funny, right? The whole Leviathan thing or how he used uh, words or calling out people like Gideon, the great destroyer who doubted God. Is God being humorous and clever in those situations or does it just appear that way to us because that is what we find funny, subjectively speaking? So maybe right now, God isn't displaying his sense of humor. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have a sense of humor because, again, in Revelation, we see the beauty that all sin is going to be wiped away. God is going to make all things new. And maybe then when he is not dealing with our sin of the moment, he can express himself in humor. But as I ponder this question and as you are pondering this question, really ask, is it time for God to laugh? Or is every interaction that he's had since Adam and Eve been nothing but a loving God engaging with a broken creation that is constantly in rebellion against him? I don't know. But to wrap this up and give some final thoughts, I warned you, it's a conversation about God's sense of humor, but it's a serious one. And humor may be dead for you for a few days. It's okay. Go throw on some comedy. Go look at kitten pictures online. I don't know. You know, my, my point in this wasn't to kill humor. It wasn't to overanalyze comedy until it's no longer comedic. But I recognize that by trying to understand and explain the joke, it ruins the joke. It ruins the fun of what humor is, and it even ruins the fun of the question of does God have a sense of humor? I recognize that. And I also recognize that in having this conversation, it can remove maybe some of the fun idea we may have had of God. You know, maybe we think, oh yeah, God does have a sense of humor because look at the platypus. But the platypus was made as God saw something as perfect and good. It looks weird to us because that's how we experience humor in this big, you know, fat beaver creature with the funny face. And so I don't want this conversation, or as you're digesting this, I don't want it to become this thing where you think, wow, I guess God's just an old fuddy-duddy. Because like I said, I don't think that's true. I think that God does enjoy cleverness. God enjoys creativity and the joy that comes out of comedic situations or humor or however we want to kind of parse that out. And so I hope that this 
this conversation and this really kind of deep dive into a simple question has made you just consider God more, to realize that there is more to him than just these simple categories we stick him in, but that God is a a full-natured being. He is God. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One essence, separate persons. We don't understand him. We can't understand him. We are to God as Job was. There is so much that we think we've got figured out and solved, but God is just more majestic than we will ever understand. But even in the midst of that, I want to leave this with perhaps a lighter thought as we just kind of wrap this up in a package. As we've seen, I think that it's clear that God appreciates at the very least, like I said, cleverness and creativity. And those are aspects that we use when we want to be funny and to be humorous. We appreciate when someone's funny because they are clever, because they are creative in the things they say or how they say them. They they have something that is unique to them that allows them to create humor. And humor is a good thing. It's a blessing in our lives. Sometimes it is what is needed to give us the reality of a situation. To be able to laugh at something is to say, this is not the most tragic thing in my life that is inescapable. Humor is a sign of hope. Even in the midst of darkness, there is a sign of there being good despite bad. And so perhaps we will never make God laugh because God isn't going to experience humor in that way. Because I think that that things that are funny to us are just a part of our, our finite and limited experience. You know, those three aspects of comedy that I talked about. But I don't think we can discount the fact that God is ultimate in every single way. Everything about him is perfect and good and the and the absolute ideal of anything. His justice, his love, his generosity, his justice, his judgment, his anger, all of it is absolutely perfect. And so what we should ask ourselves at the end of this conversation is if humor isn't sinful and many of us enjoy hearing humor and using humor in our lives, then I think there's a good chance that God gave us the gift of humor to let us take part in another aspect of his character. So I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I hope it's been enlightening, but also fun and has just challenged you to not only know your God a little better, but to love him and everything that he is so much more. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ. 